Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey folks, welcome to the Canadian Wargamer podcast episode 20 with me, Mike. And I'm James. Hey, James. How are you? Oh, we're all right now. Yeah. Here we are, episode 20, a year and a bit into it. And uh, it's funny, I got an email today from one of our listeners, Die in Vancouver. Die, no, not Vancouver, uh, further south, California. Sorry about that, mate. And he said he liked the podcast, but he said that uh, yours truly sounded a bit down in the dumps and I, I'm hoping I'm a little more upbeat tonight. Get used to the new job and everything. Yeah. And there was uh, I think we were kind of frank that there was a bit of, you know, there was some mental health stuff going on on my part, but anyway, we're back and I'm feeling much happier. And one of the reasons I'm feeling happier tonight is we have a guest this time. So our listeners are not going to just be subjected to you and I nattering. Oh, come on. We are fascinating. Well, we are fascinating, but our and guest be amusing. Is- all right, endlessly amusing. Our guest is equally fascinating. So tonight we have uh, uh, the doyen of Canadian Napoleonic Wargaming, Glenn Pierce. Glenn, hello. Hello, Michael. I, I called hey, you a doyen. Good, good. We're glad you're with us. I called you a doyen, and I'm honestly vaguely unsure what a doyen is. It's kind of like a hmm. dean or something like that. Help me out, James. What is a doyen? So like a doily? Uh, no. <laughs> I if I'm recalling correctly, I you know I'm gonna to have to look up look it up on the Oxford English Dictionary. It just sounds very distinctive. distinctive uh, I think a doyen is a uh, society lady who holds. Oh, okay. Scratch great, that. Who holds a great deal of um, influence? All right. Okay. Well, the. Okay, let's let's take two. We have tonight on the show an elk. Sorry, um, take three. Glenn Pierce, Toronto Wargaming Society, Napoleonic celebrity uh, in Canadian wargaming circles. Glenn, lovely of you to be on the podcast tonight. My pleasure. I'm uh, certainly glad to be here. Yeah, and this is your second appearance because we had you on in the early fall talking with um, uh, Jim Ozarski and... Uh, from anything but a one. And um, we were talking about Napoleonic rules and, and it was lovely to have your voice as part of that. But now we have you all to ourselves. Yes, yes. Yeah, so we're excited. You are a, uh, a veteran. Uh, you are definitely a Gronyard as far as if, if there are Canadian Gronyards, you are a Gronyard. Tell us about your uh, Wargaming bio, Glenn. Figures, uh, that end of it. Before that, I did a lot of board gaming. Figures kind of fascinated me 
and I started uh, buying some Airfix solo, of course, because there was no one I knew who wargamed. And, and how, how old were you when you were doing this? Yeah, how old would you have been? I was in my uh, late twenties. Oh, that oh, late? So yes, a late bloomer. And it's probably in the uh, uh, late seventies. There were no real wargaming clubs per se that I knew of. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no way to really contact anybody. Yes, yes. I, I just stumbled across some uh, magazines, if you want to call them that. They were more like uh, typewritten notes that were circulated as, as, a, as a magazine of some type. Mm -hmm. And in it, it mentioned uh, people in England and... Uh, one person here, a Professor Donald Degree, who mm -hmm. I believe uh, was a uh, teacher out of um, Guelph University. Okay. And he was um, friends with uh, a number of the uh, well-known celebrities in, uh, in England. Um, names escape me at the moment, but everybody knows them except me. I mean, yeah, people like Peter Young and that generation. Yeah, Peter Young and um, oh, more even more famous than him. Charles Grant, Don Featherstone. Both yeah. of them. Yeah, he knew them all. Hmm. Well, back well, then, if you took if you made the effort to write, these guys would write back because they wanted, you know, just like us, they wanted to share their passion. Yeah, just then, yeah, they they are all enthusiastic, and uh, Donald was the only one locally, so I managed to track him down and visit him one day. And he had a game set up in his uh, dining room, actually. <laughs> and the figures were there and all that. And I was fascinated. And uh, he uh, gave me a copy of his rules, which were typed, just a, a sheet of uh, on two sides. And that was it. He said it didn't have anything formal. And you could understand the charts and that, which I could. So I, I took them away and uh, thought that was interesting, but uh, I still had no one to play with. So I uh, managed to hook up with the Ontario Model Soldiers Society. Okay. Who at the time was uh, the only people I knew who had, had figures, even though I was aware they didn't war game with them, they just used them for display. And so I wrote them a letter and asked if there any, anyone war gamed and if they uh, could put me in touch with them. Uh, two years later, a fellow contacted me and, and said, I got this letter here. I'm the, I'm the new president, and there's this letter from you. And, and I wondered if anybody answered it. And I said, uh, no. <laughs> so he hooked me up with a guy in the beaches. He was running a, a little club out of his basement, and he started the, this, this club. And they were ancient players. Okay. And the scale at the time was 25 millimeters. Uh, 30 millimeter figures were in vogue, but then they kind of waned and 25 took over. 20s and 40s had flopped around, but never really grabbed hold, apparently. And 25s were things to go. But anyway, he had the, the ancients going. But when I met him, what happened was his son had met a fellow in university at the U of T and he was a, a Napoleonic enthusiast. And so they flipped the club from being agents to being Napoleonics. Those darn youngsters. 
causing trouble. Yeah, I, I guess, well, the ancient players kind of faded away, so I guess they had uh, the father had no choice. He was now a junior voice, but they had he had the table, he had the place, so they used it. So anyway, it was a, an interesting uh, group. Uh, they were called the Marshallette, kind of a uh, different kind of name. Mm-hmm. And the rules they were using were made up by themselves. And uh, I was given a binder, a three-ring binder, and that was the, that was the rules. The interesting thing about it, though, is every game or every so often they'd make changes, of course. Yeah. And you'd get handed your uh, notes to fill into your binder. Well. If you missed the meeting when the notes was given out, you weren't always aware that there were notes that were given out. Mm. So everybody's binder was kind of incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we we struggled through that, and uh, the the group only met uh, once a month, and. Uh, other players like myself were more anxious to play more often. And by that time I'd set up a table at my place. And so I offered, I said, look, I don't have much to do through the week. So maybe if you guys want to meet, you can come to my place on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week, if you want. So a couple of guys did that. Next thing you knew, uh, a lot of the guys were coming. The group wasn't that big. There was maybe uh, seven or eight of us all together. Not a bad group. Which was still sizable for, for that time. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it came along that uh, we discovered six millimeter. And that would be in the late 70s. And the first ones were Heroic and Ross. Right. Uh, in fact, they were the only one as far as we knew. Yeah, that was pretty groundbreaking stuff. But... Um, we had we had hit a wall with our with our group, and that is we had a very large collection of twenty five millimeter figures. All of us had maybe a couple of thousand of them. So, and our table was uh, twelve feet by eight feet. So it was three uh, four by eight sheets. But we found with that we had no room anymore for our big battles our, our units were 36 figures <laughs> yeah so when you spread out just even a battalion you're looking at a couple of feet so the table got ate up real quick and so we hit the wall as far as maneuver went or, or having really big units mm-hmm. so the first solution we had was to uh, gear down our units first we said we'll use double lines instead of single lines which shrunk things in half, but still didn't solve the problem. Then we reduced our units down to 12-figure battalions. And that seemed okay at first, but again, that just allowed us to put more of our figures on the table that we couldn't put on before. So we hit the same wall. So when we saw the six-millimeter figures, uh, there were two of us at the time. We both turned to ourselves and we said, flanks. So we realized that six-millimeter was a practical solution to the difficulty of flanks and table size. So three of us started with six millimeter. 
and we slowly built our armies. Uh, the other guys were not interested. And then after time, more of the guys became interested because they liked the idea that they could play the big battles on uh, a reasonable size table, didn't always have to play them on uh, our, our normal game table. So the club came kind, kind of to a point where who wanted to play six and who wanted to play 25. Mm -hmm. And the majority wanted to play six. And the 25 guys didn't want to play six at all. Hmm. So we had a split. And the 25 millimeter guys, as far as we know, gradually phased out. The six millimeter group gradually grew. So that uh, set the stage for our, our club. And we used to meet uh, every Tuesday and Thursday and every second Sunday. So we, we got in all kinds of games. Yeah. 10 games a week. Yeah. So or a month. Sorry. Yeah. What we do is probably on the uh, Monday, we'd sort out something in a campaign kind of sense. And then we decide that we had a battle. And then on the Thursday, we'd set it all up. And then we'd come on the Sunday and play it. Ah. And then if it was too long, which a lot of them were, then we'd finish it out on the, on the Tuesday or the Thursday. And then start again. Hmm. So that worked. But then we realized that um, that was kind of cumbersome. And some people who were there on the uh, the one day weren't there the next day, especially if they were losing. <laughs> funny, funny how that works. They come back is just a uh... yeah. There was there's was, there was no draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started looking at uh, ways and means to speed up games, and uh, one of the things we realized was having small units that breakup just wasn't working. Uh, it took too long to change formation. Our turns, our turns were about 20 to 25 minutes. And most of that was being taken up by changing formation yeah. or, or just trying to literally move the, the volume of figures around. So, we also started reading more and became more evolved in how things worked historically. Mm -hmm. and, and we began to realize that Napoleonic warfare in the view of most scholars was not involved in playing uh, rock, paper, scissors with your figures on the table. Uh, Italians changing formation was not really a, a main steam or a stable of Napoleonic warfare. Italians didn't move by themselves. They moved in brigades. Uh, brigades set up the formation and the battalions maintained the formation of the brigade. And of course, uh, commanders had the right to change the, their battalion in cases of emergency. But other than that, they were supposed to maintain the, the same physical outlay that was dictated to them by the brigadier, who in turn got his orders from the divisional general, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So the, the fluidity that we had traditionally seen in our games were, were what we call, uh, or some others as well, shotgun games, where every battalion is for itself from the word go. This battalion goes this way, this battalion goes that way. He changes formation because cavalry is approaching. The cavalry is only approaching because he knows under the rules that if you're not in square, you're dog meat. 
So the, the cavalry, rather than act accordingly like it did on a normal Napoleonic battlefield, it simply uh, sneaks around the field or sneaks around the field trying to jump on battalions that aren't in uh, line or, or aren't in square. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the games we were playing and we thought were realistic were kind of self-made up games. <laughs> and the vast majority of the rules that were on, on the marketplace all supported that theory. Yeah. And uh, still do today, actually. And uh, it just after our readings that this didn't jive with our view of how Napoleonic warfare really played out. Hmm. Uh, battalions didn't change formation very often. In fact, they usually the formation they arrived on the field was the one they stayed with throughout, throughout the battle. And uh, other than you see major changes, uh, like in Waterloo, for instance, where the British fall back and form in the square. And that's uh, all of them, uh, you know, the brigades, division, the, the whole group falls back and forms in the square because they expect a mass cavalry attack. And, but again, that's not an individual choice by those battalion commanders. That's, that comes down from above. Everybody falls back and forms in the square. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once we got that uh, off our chest, um, our games... Uh, move faster, and we only organized our battalions onto a single base. And so we did did away with changing formation. We we played that for a while, but the problem we had was, still had, was trying to figure out what was a reasonable base size for six millimeter. And at that point in time, we stumbled across uh, Bacchus six millimeter. Right who would kind of seem to be evolving the same way we did, only they have reached, reached the goals faster. And they had figured out that the best standard size for six millimeter figures was a 60 millimeter by 30 millimeter base. And that evolved from how they produced the figures. They produced them in uh, 20 millimeter strips. Right. So three of them, or six of them on a base, you got a unit that looks like a, a battalion that's ironically a similar size to what the 25s are using. Uh, they were using also 25 or 24, they were using 24 figures on a base as well in some areas. And so now they're, Bacchus have figured out using 24 figures on a single base for a battalion. And you do away with the, the nuances of changing formations but they also were clever enough to insert in their in their rules that it was uh, assumed that the uh, command was there. So if in fact infantry was uh, attacked by cavalry, the infantry was automatically assumed to be in square under like conventional rules where you actually had to physically have your figures in square, otherwise you weren't in square. Mm-hmm. And that did away with all the uh, nonsense of changing formations and slowing our games down. So we actually were able to compress our turns down to about uh, 10 minutes a turn. Wow, that's pretty good. Uh, it was it was a tremendous evolution once you got awake because every turn, what you were doing was you sat back and you had to figure out every one of your units, were you in the best formation or not? 
for the possible scenario against every other unit the enemy had to attack you. So you spent all your time analyzing and trying to project what the next moves were of everybody under your control and everybody that could attack you under your control. And then when you finally got that sorted out, then you had to actually move your figures and where, how are you going to end up your move where you're going to be vulnerable again? So the whole game was being bogged down by all these uh, idiotic kind of uh, what can they do or what won't they do? Or, and it, it was just tremendous how the games changed from being slow and dull. And you, you sit there. I remember being in a, at a convention once. We went out and had lunch. Well, the other side moved. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, it was a big game, of course. Uh, but, yeah. But that, that just showed how bad things were in, in, uh, at that time. You know, it often, it often amazes me how many players, including myself, have put up with dull games for years. Yes. Thinking that, you know, it would get better at some point. But, you know. Yeah, like, we, and we stuck with the hobby. Yeah. Yes. Right. I, yes. Yes. Yeah. It says something about I don't know our our our, our fanaticism. I guess. Glenn, I, I wanted to go back for just a second to. I, I'm really fascinated by the, the the fact that your group, at least most of your group, made it a really important decision to go from 25 mil to six mil because that's pretty that's a pretty significant decision and and. You mentioned that at that time, was it just Heroics and Ross that was doing? Uh, no, by that time, uh, Irregulars had shown up. They were okay. also doing six. Yeah. I think I think even Adler had, had shown up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Adler, Adler was rare. Uh, it wasn't that well known. A lot of people weren't aware of it. Yeah. And then uh, Bacchus showed up and slowly dominated the scene. Yeah, yeah. Bacchus has grown. Traditionally, most of those companies are just uh, a couple of people running them. Right. Or just one. Bacchus, yeah. now, Bacchus now has uh, four machines running all day. Wow. And uh, the staff collectively is probably about seven regulars. And he has uh, other occasionals who help in molding and other areas. Uh, yeah. So it's turned into a, a, a nice little shop that he's got going there. Yeah. And in and, fact, they were they were so busy during the pandemic that they were restricting the size of their orders, weren't they? Yes. It was pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And like I, I do remember from you know the pages of War Games Digest when I was a young lad in the late 70s, yeah, that you know, GHQ micro armor and six millimeter was the hot new thing. But then there was also this 15 millimeter stuff coming on the scene, and you guys just kind of went right by the 15s into six. Well, at the, at the time, you're right. The, that was our big dilemma. We we knew 25s weren't workable. We knew 6s were, but we looked at 15s and we said, you know, 15s is a nice size. So we started, we did start out painting some 15s and then we realized the 15s took almost as long to paint as the 25s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we weren't gaining much in painting time, whereas the sixes, you can knock those suckers off, you know, in an evening, you could do, make a, a battalion or something. And yeah, so especially like when you're, yeah, especially when you're looking but, at going from, 
know, I've got my collection of thousands of 25 millimeter and I'm trying to replace that. Yeah. Yep. So it's a huge, you know, time investment yes. that you're trying to, you know, get over. Yep. And that's why some of the group guys didn't join us mm-hmm. because yeah. they had so much invested and didn't want to change scales. They didn't want to get into new problems, but we saw it collectively as the only way practically forward. Uh, if you wanted to improve your game and play bigger games and get more out of the hobby altogether. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, the irony of it is I'm just this year selling off my 25s. They've been, <laughs> they've been, they've been sitting in the basement for years. Our original thoughts were we'd play the big battles with six millimeter and we play the small battles with 25 millimeters. Yep. But everybody, once they got involved in the sixes, didn't want to go back to the 25s. <laughs> this yeah. is the, it, you got to lug these things around. Like we used to play games with a few other groups and you had to pack up your figures in the, in the boxes, load yeah. them up in the vans, unload them out of the vans, out of the boxes, set up on the tables. And then, then the day, by the time you got them set up, you're, you're at, it was noon. You, you played for a few hours, realized you couldn't finish the game. You made an agreement who won and who lost. You packed them all up and went home. Yeah. So, so you know, you weren't really gaming anyway. All you're doing is moving, right? Yeah. Yeah. Goes back to my point about why did we persist for so long doing right. this? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but in all fairness, it depends on where your goals are. If sure. your goals is to play small battles, 25s is pretty damn good. Yes. But if your goal is you want to play major battles, it's not a very recommendable uh size. I mean, look at those guys not that long ago who replayed Waterloo. They rented a huge hall, had hundreds of people, thousands and thousands of figures, took them days and days to set it up. Yeah. It was, you know, is that how you play big games in 25? Uh, that's not for me. No, no. Yeah, and, and I, I remember from, you know, when I was a young lad, uh, there was an article in War Games Digest again, and it was this group that did the Battle of Leipzig with like 25 millimeter or they might've been airfix figures. And yeah, they, they rented a school gymnasium for a weekend and yeah. there was like this overhead shot from the bleachers and there's like Leipzig in the middle and the roads coming out, you know, from the center court and, and they're moved, you know, these guys are walking around moving, you know, but I, I think they're, they're doing like moving battalions around and in mm-hmm. this very old school game. And I was like, Oh, wow. I was like, you know, that was so aspirational to me to be able to do that. And that yeah, we, was just, just ridiculous. Yeah, we played in a gym floor once, and that was it. Never again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it was the guys, Tom Castanios and his friends on the um, Joy of Six uh, podcast were talking about how, you know, that even not even high school gym wargaming, but just garage wargaming, right? Like where you get together with five or six friends and you're going to spend a whole weekend you know, fighting some giant battle. Um, you know, that's cool when you're in your twenties. Yeah. You know, the idea now that I've just turned 60 of being in a gymnasium full of sweaty war gamers uh, for a weekend, I, I don't think I would physically endure it or mentally endure it. Right. No. So there's a lot to be said for the smaller battle or, or the faster battle as we get older, the smaller scale and the, and the slow and the shorter time scale. Like yeah. the actual physical time of playing it, yeah, yeah. yeah we meet like... at—I uh, don't know if you remember, Michael. We meet at uh, nine o'clock in the morning. Yes. And we we break for lunch. 
and we close it down at four o'clock. Yep. Yep. And in, in most cases, well, in most cases, the, the game is over, or you can clearly see which side is going going to win in the next couple of turns. So there's no yeah. point in carrying on. Yeah, I I remember Glenn, and I was gutted that I couldn't come down this summer. It was that. Uh, uh, it was ironically, it was, you know, six days into me having COVID and I was still testing positive, but I felt pretty good, but I just didn't feel in good conscience. I could, uh, come down there, but I do remember your setup, uh, in your basement. It's great. Now, do you set the game up like Friday night or, you know, do you set the game up beforehand? So everything's in place and you can just like yeah. hand people their briefings and say, right, there's your, there's your division. There's your core. Yeah. Go. Yeah, the, everything everything set up. The table set up. I take my time because uh, I don't always have all that time, much time to, to do it. So, like, we just finished the game on uh, this is Sunday. So, the next game is going to be in December sometime. So, I got a month. First, I evaluate how many players are coming, and then I try to find a game that will accommodate that number of players. Ah. Because if the game is too big and there's not enough players. And it gets bogged down the same way it used to be. Right. There's too much too much movement for not enough uh, players. So we, I try and balance the battle we're going to fight with the number of players we have. And that way they usually do end around 4 o'clock. The game we fought uh, this Sunday was over at uh, actually right at 4 o'clock. That was the uh, – I'm just looking at your Facebook page, Glenn. That was the Medina de Rio Seco game? Yes. Yeah, from the Peninsular War, yeah. That, that's just a straight up uh, French Spanish fight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who won? Uh, the French did, as they did historically. But we wanted it, we wanted a different way than they did historically. Historically, the Spanish were split on two separate hills, and the French just went down the center and smashed them because right. there was a mile between the two armies. Hmm. So, but we did it differently. We knew that the Spanish would uh, try to fill that void, which they did. But in doing so, they left both their wings open. So we just attacked the wing that looked the weakest and took it out. Well, yeah, the Spanish were certainly, uh, you know, let down by some pretty bad generalship. Yes. But, you know, if you can pull off a win with the Spanish, I think you get extra bragging rights. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, there's potential. We played it. That's the third time we played it. I think the Spanish did win once. Oh, very good. But I don't remember who, who did it. Or what the circumstances were, because it's so long ago. Yeah, we were James and I were talking in the last podcast about our our friend in Ireland, Conrad Kinch, who gave a paper recently about um, it was called Plus Three if Surprised or Spanish, and he was talking about national characteristics in the um, Napoleonic period and how you model them and why it is that everybody just sort of thinks the Spanish are a terrible, terrible army, and yeah, they weren't that great in in some individual battles, but I think he made the point that it's hard to find a more resilient army. You know, like the Spanish never gave up like they, you know, yes. so that's, it's, it's one of those armies where it might actually be better fighting in a campaign than fighting in a battle. Yeah. And they did, you know, and they, they did, they did have a few wins too. Yeah. I mean, Balin most famously, but I think I, Oh God, the names escape me. They, they had another couple of wins yes. as well. The yeah. Spanish definitely had uh, some crack troops. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, again, we're dealing with a lot of wargaming myths. Eh? That uh, 
started out, I don't know where it came from, but even today, a lot of rules contain national characteristics and the Spanish yeah. are blackballed as well as some others that they're always being poor troops. And it's just not true. Yeah. When I, that's why I, I like rules that put the move, the emphasis to the command and control. Yeah. You know, where that's where, you know, that's where the French and then, you know, the later, the, the uh, remodeled Prussian army do well because yes. they've got good command and control and yep. very flexible, you know, whereas your Austrians are, you know, they're solid soldiers, yes. but just let down by some, yeah, some bad generals who are just, you know, don't know what's going on. They don't know how to get the intelligence. They don't know how to send out effective orders. Well, the, the, the problems with the Austrians and the, and the order system was the in the before they moved into the uh, core system, the orders were written the night before by the commander in chief for every battalion. Yeah. <laughs> and those orders were then passed down through the chain in command. And so when the shit hit the fan, the commanders of those battalions had nothing to fall back on. They had their orders. They had no uh, no incentive or anything else. Didn't know what to do unless someone came down and told them to do something different, and that didn't happen. Yeah, the um, I, I'm just reading. Um, I'm, I'm halfway through John Gill's Thunder on the Danube trilogy. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I got that on my list here, maybe. Oh, well, there we go. We'll, we'll both recommend it. I know, the, I know that I got the book. I don't know if that's in my pile, but I know I got it. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, and he and he talks about how, you know, there's like a Austrian corps commander who's, you know, there's a situation he could take initiative, but he defers to the staff officer that's just ridden up. Yeah. You know, and like these guys are just doing so much butt covering. Yes. And because they, they didn't have, they didn't have the, you know, unlike, you know, Napoleon who... He, you know, he would he would rip a strip off a guy who who um, got himself into trouble. But if you took the initiative and you did well, you know, you're suddenly a count. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're made a marshal, right? So yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I, it might pay off, and I and I get the big reward, or the emperor's mad at me, and he'll forget, you know, but he'll forget about that in a week. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, you know, it encourages him to be bold. Mm -hmm. that's right you do well tomorrow and uh, wake up the next day and you're the king of naples or something it's like woo. Yeah. yeah plus you can't undersell the fact that the uh, the french had been at war since the revolution mm -hmm. yes so these are all seasoned soldiers uh, seasoned commanders they're not new at this game Whereas the austrians oh is it what year is it okay we're at war this year we're we haven't been at war for three years and uh the commanders are still the same, but a lot of the other guys are not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they didn't have the they didn't have that um, cult that that, that um, culture within the regiments and everything. Where you know, like yeah. you know, John Gill talking about you know, like French battalions of conscripts. Like these guys are new. They they aren't the veterans of eighteen oh six and eighteen oh five. They're new to the colors. But they've they've inherited that that um, culture, yes. And so they're they're charging forward very enthusiastically. Saying, oh, yeah. on, let's go! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The spirit and of the revolution lived on. Yeah, and they're and they're fighting like they're fighting like veterans. Yeah, 
maybe even better than veterans because they're being a little more reckless because they, you know, haven't seen half their friends blown apart by canister yet. Yeah. Yeah. And something that to be said with an army that's been victorious for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, know, you, you might be new, but now you know you're surrounded by not only veterans, but winners. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Wellington's comment in the movie Waterloo that Napoleon's hat was worth 50,000 men. Mm. Yeah, the, the 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 reverse of that though is that you know as you're seeing with the Russians and right now in the, the Ukraine is you can take a bunch of um, conscripts or mobiks and you can call them like the 56 guards rifle motor battalion and it doesn't mean anything because there's no tradition around them right they're just right. A, yeah they're just a mob of sullen ill-equipped guys in an army that has no legitimacy so. Yeah, that it's amazing that the French army held together for so long, just because, as you said, they had that heritage. We yeah. we've talked about Napoleonics so much that I think some people might think this is the Canadian Napoleonics podcast. But Glenn, you're also interested in the uh, American Revolutionary War. Yes. Yeah. How did that come about? How did that did that kind of grow out of the, just a general horse and musket interest, or? Uh, well, I've always been interested in all periods of warfare. Okay. But the thing that nailed it for me was uh, Peter Berry of Bacchus had been uh, soliciting a number of writers to write a set of rules for the American War of Independence. And they all failed to do it because they didn't really understand the Polmo's system of rules and how they actually worked. And I, and I did because I'd been playing his Napoleonic versions for a number of years. And so I said, you know, I could write an American uh, War of Independence set of rules if you wanted me to. And he said, sure, okay, go ahead for it. So I did, and I, uh, in writing it, I did even more research than I had in years before and, and dug deeper into it and began to realize just how suitable it was for the Pulmo series of rules. And then I looked at uh, the other uh, wars in North America, which were not really covered and probably never would cover them because they're kind of small change to the English market. And that was uh, the French and Indian War and the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. And when I looked closely at that, I saw that Warfare really didn't change through all that period. The things that changed were the compositions of the armies. Uh, you have the French and Indian War, where it's basically uh, a skirmish war. You got the couple of big battles and that's it. Everything else is, is kind of a skirmish. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's happening. And then you move into the American War of Independence. And you kind of got the same guys who fought in the French and Indian War fighting in that war. And uh, the only difference is there's there's more battles, but the battles are, are more kind of seven-year seven year war-ish in that they're all fighting in line. And so again, there's that's about it. And the composition of the army starts to, starts to change where they actually have some light troops. They have some light infantry, and of course the militias are basically all light troops. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. So now you're looking at kind of the maturity of the French and Indian War. And so you're not really changing. What's changing is the composition of the armies. Mm -hmm. uh, the tactics are still similar. The weapons are still similar. And then you make the move to the War of 1812, which is uh, nothing more than the Napoleonic War in North America. And again, you see the same thing. You've got the uh, lines, like they're not using columns like they do in Europe. Uh, so it's just an extension of the American War of Independence, only again, uh, they're a little more professional, the, the, the hardcore British Army coming with uh, tremendous experience from Europe fighting the Americans whose army is not as uh, well-trained or veteran as the, uh, as the British, but uh, over time they uh, mature and start to become formidable enemies too. But they're using very similar tactics that have been used throughout the history of North America. Mm -hmm. Formed units where possible, skirmished units where it's more practical. Right. And you're, play are you, you're playing all these in six millimeter as well? Yes. In fact, okay. so that's how, how the rules evolved. Uh, Ruse de Guerre. We also use it for American Civil War using the, the same philosophy that uh, things really haven't changed there either. Weaponry is a little stronger. The, the firepower is a little uh, more deadly. Artillery is definitely more deadly. Uh, but they're, they're fighting in a similar way. The, uh, they're fighting in closed lines and they're fighting in skirmish order. And they're fighting in woods, which they've been doing since the French and Indian War. So there's not a lot of uh, big differences there either. So mm -hmm. you're just changing the, like, um, you know, in your Napoleonic battles, each each stand, each maneuver unit, you're, you're pushing around as a battalion. Yes. But you, you for French and Indian Wars, American Revolution, you're like each stand is a company now or? It can be. Mm -hmm. that, that's uh, one of the secrets of the rules is you can start off your collection at a very small number of figures and your battles will be, can be small. But as your collection grows, uh, your size of your battles can grow. And your stand can be called different things. In some, in some games, your stand might be called uh, half a battalion. And in some games, it might be a, a company. It depends on uh, how you want to work it. And other, okay. other, other games, it could be a battalion. It could be a regiment. It could even be a brigade if you wanted to go to extremes and fight Leipzig. Mm -hmm. so, so, you, so you can use the same collection and the yes. same set of rules yes. for everything from Leipzig down to, you know, I've got two battalions and some Grenzers and two guns defending a bridge. Yes, huh. exactly. Cool. And in fact, uh, we just recently we played the, the Battle of Cowpens for the American War of Independence. Right. And in the rule book, it's uh, one uh, stand is, is a battalion. And we had more players than the game really needed. So what we did is we doubled the figures. So now the units the units were bigger. So a player only had to command a couple of units and he had a nice size force to handle for the day. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So we fought the same battle at uh, twice the table space and uh, twice the number of figures. And the interesting thing is the, the game 
has a sort of different dynamic to it as you play it because now there's more things in motion. So it, 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 even the experienced people who had played cowpins before found that the, the dynamics had changed where they had to rethink their game. That is super cool. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like when I think of the French and Indian War, I, 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 which I don't honestly know a lot about, uh, the only battle that I could think of that I would think of would really look European would be the, the Plains of Abraham. And everything yes. else, everything else, it seems to me, is asymmetric, right? It's yeah, it's you know French and Indian light troops, um, you know, fighting, trying to find advantage against a, a the British that that has more regular troops, but develops better light troops over time, right? So yes, um, which I guess is why you know a lot of the the, the miniature roles out there on that period are kind of more skirmishy. Yep. Yeah, but so what would uh what would uh, I mean? Are there any other battles that you've modeled from that period other than you know like the Plains of Abraham that are kind well, of well? More... The following year was the Battle of Saint Foy on the same battlefield. Right. So we we that's in the in the rule book too. Those two are the uh, main ones for the French and Indian War. Yeah. There's yeah. a there's um another couple of actions around Quebec though, like sort of. On the other side, where they where um, Wolf tried to land some troops, and there is fighting. Yeah, mm. yeah. Early, the first phase, basically, of the the battle. Yeah, Wolf tried to. Uh, he thought that was a weak point, and he found out it wasn't. So he had to go back and rethink his plan again. When just out of as a little out of curiosity for my part, you mentioned board games earlier. Have you ever looked at that? Um, the GM, the GMT board game for that period, uh, Bayonets and Tomahawks. Oh, no, I once I uh, got into miniatures, I never played a board game since. All right, okay, fair enough. <laughs> See, Mike, it's just an itch that I vainly scratched, but that's um, that's a really fascinating, like uh, a strategic level game of the whole, um, the whole theater, you know, from kind of like Virginia all the way up to. Quebec and so forth, and yeah, it's it's a uh, it's actually designed by a Canadian guy out of Montreal. It's 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 a pretty cool game, but it would be a, I think it could be a great scenario generator if you were looking for a fusion between a board game and miniatures gaming. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. Um, okay, I can show you the books. That won't take long. Yeah, I um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the the Toronto the the Toronto sorry Napoleon Miniatures War Game Society of Toronto. Tell can you so that's your baby right? That's your brainchild. Yeah, well, I'm the I'm the uh, third uh, gatekeeper. Oh, the third. The, the first guy, as I said, it was in his basement in the beaches. Okay. And then it was taken over by his son and a friend of his. Uh, they turned it into a 25 millimeter Napoleonics. Yeah, so when it went to a fork in the road, the, the 25 millimeter group carried on for a while, but the six millimeter group uh, stayed and gradually grew in. And so we took the name, uh, a different name than what they had, uh, the Marshallette. Uh, we called it the uh, Napoleonic uh, Wargamer Society of Toronto. And, uh, but we kept, 
their date of uh, when they started because we felt that that was legitimate. We we're uh, legitimate off growth, but next year will be the uh, 58th year of the club. Oh, oh. So it's uh, now most of that's now been under my uh, tutorship, but uh, it did it did pre-exist before I took it over. Wow, that must make you maybe the oldest war games club in Canada. I believe we're one of the oldest Napoleonic clubs in the world. Wow. Because most clubs are diversified, for one thing. Yeah. You know, they play different periods. They don't necessarily focus in on one period like we did. Yeah. And uh, after a few years, there were other Napoleonic clubs around the world, but they started later than us, and I don't think any of them exist anymore either. Mm hmm but even as a club per se, we probably uh, are older than any other club or very many clubs anyway. Yeah. But you you also do, as you said, uh, you do some American Civil War stuff as well. Yeah, we do American Civil War. And right now we're working on uh, some World War II rules. Oh, okay. Which uh, we hope, hope to bring out to light another maybe five years or so. I like I like how you're thinking long term. Are you are you looking at those um, Bacchus World War II figures? Yeah, that, that's the motivation. Uh, yeah. When when uh, Peter brought them out, I always enjoyed playing some World War II uh, games, but uh, I always found them extremely tedious. Most of them. Mm. Um, the rules were usually thicker than a Bible. Uh, one group I played with for a while, they had three rule books and uh, they were written by different people, of course. And when you fired this tank, you had to go to this rule book. When you fired another tank, you had to go to another rule book. Mm -hmm. And uh, you spent most of your time twiddling your thumbs. But uh. any, anyway, the whole micro world kind of didn't seem to fit my style of gaming very well. I, spent most of my time sleeping during those games so so we uh when peter brought it out i said to him maybe i could write a world war ii set for you and uh on a similar vein as ruse de guerre you know yeah. making it uh, faster uh, maybe at a higher level than what most of them are at uh so you can fight some bigger battles rather than just small skirmishes which seems to be the domain of most of the yeah, uh, six millimeter rule sets. Yeah, and uh, make it more interesting and fast, yet still have a feel of World War II. So, yeah, those are the the points we strive at, and we know we're not going to achieve that overnight. Glenn, I'm just curious. Have you looked at the um, the O group rules? Yes, I got a I got a copy of them. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything in there you like? No. Oh. Okay. Uh, we appreciate that. They, I mean, they're a well-written set of rules. There's no question, but they're focused on a different size of game than what we are. Okay. And that old group is a very small tactical stuff, and we want bigger strategical stuff. So, in okay. other words, uh, a tank in the rules I'm writing will represent uh, one model represent ten vehicles. Oh, okay. That kind of concept. So Whereas you, an old group, a tank is a tank. 
So your games would be like brigade or higher level? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we because my research on World War II, what I have seen is most of the combats are, you can at least zero down to a division fight. Even in a big battle, you can zero down to a divisional fight and get something going out of it. Whereas in most of the roles, you're at a battalion level fighting. Mm-hmm. And that's that's okay, but you're fighting around uh, the one village or something with a, and that's about it. Whereas I think from a more strategic point of view, which I feel makes for a more exciting game, you got a larger area to deal with and you have more problems once you have more area. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it gives the players more to deal with as well as opposed to okay you take those buildings over there that's not exciting for me in playing a game yes yeah i certainly always had that like playing at the company or battalion level yes you're very much sort of you're doing a normandy campaign game which most of us seem to play and yeah like you know your 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 company gets you know you get defeated making your attack and it's like well ho-hum we fall back for our start line and you know brigade's just going to tee up another attack Yes. You know, they're going to rotate the, the next company through to our start line, and we're going to just play this scenario over again with, you know, a couple of extra wrecked vehicles in the, in the fields. And exactly. you're, you know, winning and losing isn't quite as sort of important. If that's yes. uh, How would you do the time scale? Because I think, you know, I, I, most divisional level or battles are fought over several days, aren't they? True. We're going to be using the same kind of time logic that applies in uh, Ruse de Guerre, which is another um, interesting development that I discovered years ago mm-hmm. by a, a given author. And his name was um, George Jeffrey. You ever hear of him? George Jeffrey. No, I uh, can't say I have. Anyway, he was a Scotsman. And uh, he wrote a number of rules, but he's most famous for a concept called VLB, and that stands for variable length bound. Okay. Okay. And what he did was he developed a system where you could move great lengths of time based on your orders. Right. And as things changed, you could then change your orders, but you had to have a valid reason that something changed. And what he was able to do was play large battles over large areas because many troops were on a mission and their orders didn't change. So they could cover a lot of ground. Whereas in traditional games, which are on smaller tables, things change every turn because uh, you can see the guy and you know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So he was able to play these big battles, but he was one of the only people to really master the concept. But a lot of people writing rules uh, at the time understood what he was driving at. And they were collectively working on a uh, Napoleonic set. He had written a number of Napoleonic rules, Mm -hmm. but none using his VLB concept. And so a group was formed to try to write a Napoleonic rules uh, using his concept, 
but it went on for years and years and years and never really got anything done. But I understood his uh, system and we played it for a couple of years and uh, here as, as part of my group. And the new players were mystified by it. They couldn't really understand it because part of it was you had to explain your, uh, your game plan to the other side before the game started. Ooh. And people were uncomfortable with that, but they failed to realize that both sides explaining their plan, there was no options to change it. So you told okay. the other side your plan and they told you their plan and neither side could change the plan until they intersected each other. Okay. And you needed an umpire to uh, follow the other sides and then the umpire could tell you, okay, you can see these guys. Now what are you going to do? Right. So then you could change that part of your plan, but you couldn't change anything else because that's the only part that changed. Yeah. But people were very uncomfortable with having to explain their entire plan uh, because they felt that they're giving away their game. Yeah. Have you, have you ever played, did you ever play the Empire Rules? I, I did once and never again. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally as, as a number of people did yes yes yeah. yes that, but that, they had that they had that long bound thing too yeah yeah, yeah. You, you're moving your cores and he called he called his you know tele telescoping time system TTS yeah and, yeah he he took that concept I think from George Jeffries and molded it into the Empire system and called it what he wanted to call it yeah. but it was a it's a similar idea. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me a little bit like what I understand matrix games to be, where you say, you know, for example, I will attack on the right because I have, you know, my artillery massed here and I have my troops arrested and, and um, good armor support. And I expect to be able to break through based on, you know, the terrain or whatever. And then the referee says, okay, well, thanks for your assumptions. And then here's what actually happens. Interesting. Kind of staff game. Kind of, yeah, yeah. It 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 sounds a little bit like uh, like it's borrowing some of the ideas from a classic Kriegspiel, without giving yeah. away any any information. James and I are are playing in a, a Kriegspiel right now, a Napoleonic Kriegspiel, mm -hmm. um, run by somebody called Wendy DeWolf. And we're hoping I to have. Yeah, we're hoping to have Wendy on before um, the at the sort of culmination of the creek of the creek spill to tell us who was who and what actually happened because it's quite fascinating. But yeah, it it you're starting to get away from that, you know, what you're describing, Glenn, that kind of God's eye view of the battlefield where you you and your opponent are watching everything that you do and you know exactly what's happening. Yeah. You know? Start, that's, that's start interesting. every turn instead of the yeah, yeah you, you lose out on the, the the big sweeping you know uh, you know we've got we've got nay sweeping around the flank at Lutzen and and all that kind yeah. of good stuff yeah or or the possibility of being just totally surprised with your pants down right yeah yeah because you just I didn't know. you didn't guard that road and you you assume somebody else was guarding it and they were off on their own mission right so it was some gap opens up between two core and suddenly you're screwed. Um, Glenn, what, what uh, World War II theater or, or time frame would, would interest you as sort of what would you focus on doing this? 
Well, we're following uh, Peter's uh, lead at Bacchus. His, his first focus is Normandy. Oh, okay. So we're looking at, at that as trying to be a Kickstarter for us and then uh, possibly move forward from there or backwards, whichever way we want to go. Okay. But that's, yeah, yeah. that's our starting point. Normandy certainly, you know, very well researched. You know, you can find tons of very detailed maps for all your stuff. Yes, exactly. That, yeah. That's critical. And there's huge numbers of divisional size or core size battles as the you know, allies try and batter their way out of the bridgehead. Yeah, cool. exactly. But pretty uh, constrained in terms of your ability to maneuver, right? I mean, you're, at least on the British side, you, you, you often read about how, you know, the frontages were so limited because there were so many formations jammed into such a small area. I'm, yes. I can't help but think if I was going to do six millimeter World War II, and God stopped me from such a, a silly idea, I, I would do the Western Desert just because it's, you know, it's so fascinating. Um, you've got these, you know, this wide range of early to mid-war tanks, and you've got tons and tons of real estate to swan around in. Yes. Hmm. Although, I mean, like if you're, you know, say if you're, you're doing, you know, Operation Totalize. Yeah. And you've got your narrow front that your core is fighting on. Well, that's the table, right? Yeah. yeah. So there, there gives, it gives a logical reason for you can't maneuver off the table because now you're going outside of your core boundary. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. No good point. Hmm. Whereas, I mean, the Western Desert, what well, Rommel had all of what, three divisions? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's a sort of, oh, roll a dice. Oh, you ran out of gas. You're done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So here's, here's how we deal with time. I'll give you, I'll give you a quote. Okay. It says, time. There is no actual time scale in Pomos Rudiger. A turn represents a focus of action. That can include any number of actual movements, firings, formation and cohesion changes, and critical dispositions or critical decisions. Mm -hmm. The turn is simply a reference point for the variable period of time. Every turn can represent a different length of time. If reinforcements are to arrive or some critical event should take place, simply use the practical timeline number of turns that fits with your scenario. In other words, what we're advocating in the rules is this turn does not represent five minutes. It can represent any period of time you like. And these are the results of the actions that happened during that time. So this turn, you might have two or three fights that could, could have lasted longer or shorter. Next mm -hmm. turn, you might have only one fight that also could have lasted longer or shorter. So time is kind of a uh, elusive element in, right. in the game system. And all we're focusing down on is critical actions that happen during that time. So that's how we justify there's, there's, no, there's no time. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So it's, um, it's more, uh, I don't know, is it fair to say more episodic? Yeah. Focusing on discrete episodes of a battle rather than, you know, like tracking every single minute. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Crossfire Which is, sort of does that too. Hmm. 
you know, you, you just you just move until something happens. And, yeah. and you also avoid those arguments. Well, you couldn't have done that in that short time. Well, you know, all those silly nonsense things you got into in, in a lot of yeah. uh, where you get with like things like opportunity fire or whatever. Yeah. Yes. No, very tactical right. stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You don't get. We're not into the weeds. Yeah. We're into the results. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, being top down instead of worrying about exactly penetration yeah. versus armor versus rates yeah. of fire and yada 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 yada. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I Glenn, I know I know you're you're focused on your own set of roles, but um, have you looked at uh, Sam Mustafa's uh, Rommel roles? I haven't. I'm just curious if you've had a chance to look at them. Yes, actually, ironically, uh, that was sort of an inspiration for me. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought he was, uh, he, our roles or my roles, whatever you want, will be on a similar level. Okay. Because I think he, I think he nailed the, the level pretty good there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a fan of, of board games anymore. <laughs> and that, Romo, I don't mean to be offensive, but it strikes me as a board game. Yeah, no offense and, to and you. And you're just using miniatures. Yeah, because it, it plays think, on a grid, right? Yeah, and and I think uh, it's a brilliant idea, and a lot of people like it. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the important things. Uh, Sam knows how to design rules to meet his marketplace because he knows what his market marketplace wants. Yeah, and that's what he does, and he does it very well. I'm just, I was just fascinated with the level of game he played because that's what I saw was a, a practical level to play at versus the traditional game where you're just playing companies and squads and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think you need the higher level to get anything historical out of it other than small your, uh, small squad actions. That's all. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's occasionally I, I think about buying Rommel just to read it because I love Sam's roles, but then I think, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, yeah, well, he, ha he has a very large fan base. There's no question. He's yeah, we've we've talked to some of them, and I think he's he's um, like I, I often wonder if he's like a North American thing, right? I, I want because I never hear Brits or Europeans talk about his roles, um, and, but he's got a very dedicated network of um, people, including. American. Here in Canada, a uh, uh, college yes. age, right? Yeah. yeah. And well, I mean, he has he has managed to uh, get into the to the light. Yeah. He, uh, he promotes himself. Uh, a lot of uh, com like companies don't do that. Yeah. Bacchus, for instance, has no marketing. Everything is word of mouth. Yes, and that's it. Whereas Sam uh, markets his property, his games, and he does it very well. Yeah, and he's he's he has built a very loyal following, and all his rules uh, are enjoyed by many people. And I, I, I think he's doing a great job because he's he's serving yeah. a market that's out there. Well, I know James and I have had fun with them, um, and you know some of them I think are they they're really. Um, they're fun to play, like they're gamey, like Longstreet. Yep. James, you yep. had that great picture of me with that card on my birthday many years ago. Um, yes, your big shit-eating grin as you yeah. oiled yeah. some some attack I was about to make. 
but then some of his roles I think are a little more um, like they scratch some of the the same itches that you were talking about, Glenn, about formation, right? Like you know that's why I think Blucher is such a cool game um, because yeah, it's all formation. Formation's all abstracted in it. Um, Glenn, where do you see six millimeter going? I, I, I mean, it's it's as you said, Bacchus has got such a a great following. There's some other companies, but I I noticed, for example, that um, our friend Sean in the UK has wrapped up his um, God's Own Scale podcast, and I I got the impression I don't know I haven't followed him in the last few months or the last few episodes, but I. I got the impression he was kind of like running out of things to say about six millimeter. Do you think it's a scale that's sort of still here to stay and it's got legs or? I, I think uh, Sean has some personal issues that he doesn't really want to talk publicly about. Okay. I don't think it has anything, anything to do with his uh, podcasts or his uh, yeah. Facebook line. Uh, he's backed away from his Facebook page as well as the podcast. Yeah, but he is—he's still actively gaming and playing, so I'm not well, really sure good. what his problem is. But well, I don't good. think it has anything to do with the scale. Yeah, I don't want to—I don't—I don't know the the story, and I—I I want to respect his privacy. But I really admired the way he was an advocate for six millimeter. Yes. you are, and and he he did open the doors for a lot of people, no question. Yeah, yeah. big big following he had. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he may he may still return. I don't—I think that's not uh, a given. I hope he does. I hope he does for sure. Um, but the, still- uh, you mentioned the scale itself. As far as I can tell, uh, the scale is exploding. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, uh, there was a time when uh, the hobby was dominated by 25s, which it still is, 25s, 28s, right. which it still is. And then 15 millimeter was the second. And after that, everything was kind of a wash. Yeah. And uh, six mil, I think, has moved in strongly into third place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see that by the people who contact me. Okay. There were there were times when uh, years would go by and nobody would ever contact me or ask me about six or anything like that. Yeah. Whereas, especially during COVID, COVID, I was talking to new people every week. Mm. And. Mm. Uh, and I think it kind of goes hand in hand with uh, with Bacchus. Uh, Bacchus started out with uh, just him and one other guy. Yeah. His, his staff and the machines and the production. I think he sells more than in six million all the others combined. I I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But he's he's definitely a powerhouse. He uh, he puts on the joy of six every year. I don't know if you heard of that. Oh, yep. yes. I, I hope to make it over to the UK one year for that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's running his own own convention there to show you how. And every year, yeah. there are more traders in six than there were the previous year. Yes. Yeah. Um, if anything, this, I, um, think, I think six millimeter might be coming on a strong second. I think 15 millimeters starting to, except for maybe World War II, I think 15s are starting to disappear. I think you're yeah. right. Because they they're they're losing out on the price point versus twenty eights, yeah, right. Because now with all the plastic twenty eights coming out, have brought the price down. Big armies, yeah. Right? You know what's the point of buying fifteens and anymore? And and if you want you know lots of troops, you want that big operational level, then yeah, you might as well just go right down to six and yeah. do a brigade that's a couple of inches square. Yeah, 
Although it was, it was interesting when James and I talked a few months ago with um, some of the folks uh, behind uh, Tundra Miniatures. Oh, well, there you go. And, the, you know, they, they're they choosing to do 18 millimeter, which I guess is the new 15, but... Yeah, yeah. heroic 15s. Yeah, but I, I think it, you know, the appeal of the small scales, six and, and I would say 10 as well, is that if I wanted to get into a new period um, and I wanted to get into it soon, I would choose six or 10. Yeah, like yeah. The, I, I got into Napoleonics with six and I haven't regretted it. Um, and I mean, I think James and I have a nice agreement where if we want to play 28s, I play with his stuff. And if he wants to play six, he can play with my stuff. But I don't see six much at Canadian shows. Not that I get out much, but. Well, I, I, you're going to see more hot lead. Yeah. Okay. Because, um, you know, Keith's doing a lot of stuff with Blucher. Keith and Brian Hall, yeah. And yeah. Brian, Brian Hall, I think, I don't think Brian Hall has anything that isn't six millimeter anymore. Yeah. Next to Glenn, I'd say Brian is like Mr. Six Millimeter. All his, uh, all his periods he does in six mil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's Glenn's group, usually runs a game. And sometimes, sometimes Ian, um, Ian Tetlow will do a, uh, he'll sometimes bring out a six millimeter game. Okay. Depends on depends on what he's interested in that year. Yeah, yeah. But whatever he brings, it'll be pretty. Glenn, have you been following any of um, uh, 3D print six mil stuff that people like Henry yes, Turner are doing? Yeah. What yes. do you think of it? Uh, I think it's uh, marvelous. Yeah. Uh, he seems to be producing top quality figures. I I know a number of guys who were uh, avid. Um, six millimeter metal collectors mm -hmm. who have walked away from it and are going, have gone strictly with Turner products. Yeah. I see that just looking at them, that they're easier to paint. Uh, the definition's stronger. I'm not really a plastic fan myself or, you know, a printed figure. Yeah. But I have painted some and uh, they look marvelous. Yeah. Uh, six millimeter has the, the joy or the benefit of three feet away, you can still tell what the figure is, but you can't really tell the paint job or the quality of the figure. So it's a kind of a wash. Yeah. Uh, you can yeah. get them and paint them fast. You can get them cheaper. Mm -hmm. it, it's definitely a uh, coming on strong in the market in six as well as uh, some other scales now as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, the only drawback I, I see with them is their fragility, right? So, um, yes. well, actually, the Turners, as well as some others, yeah, uh, I understand are pretty sturdy. Well, they are, it, but once you um, once you you uh, cure them with UV light, they they can become a little brittle. And I I know that because I had a whole base of um, Cossacks with lances. Yeah which I stupidly dropped. Of course, it fell the wrong way down, just like a peanut butter sandwich. Gotcha. And all, every single lance on the base, all like because it was 15 figures all cast in a strip. Yeah. Every single goddamn lance broke. So know, I had some from, uh, I bought from, uh, or actually they sent me from Poland. Yeah. And they were pretty nice figures, but they were extremely fragile. Yeah. As well. That depends on what resin you're using, right? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It's all in the chemicals. Yeah, torn. I mean, I, uh, I think there's. I'm. I got into 3D printing last year. I'm 
I don't regret it, but I'm I'm not convinced that at the end of the day it's it's easier than um, dropping a lot of money on a big order from a Bacchus or an Adler or a, even a Pendrick, and if you want to do it in ten millimeter, right? Because then yeah, you get all, you get all the figures, whereas you don't have to uh, laboriously print you know fifty at a time. And yeah, uh, I don't have I don't have the time or inclination to to print. Yeah, yeah, or uh, to, or to buy the uh, or to look after the machine and have it uh, upkeep of the machine. Yeah, that's I don't Preacher. see it. But the other thing I see as great. The other thing I see as a great advantage is the inventory that say a company like Bacchus has. Yes, I can change your periods on a whim, and have all the figures I want here in a couple of weeks. And yeah. uh, there they are. All I got to do is find the time to paint them. Well, there you go. Now, if we just had a, a, a printing machine that made spare time, that would be <laughs> like a, well, that would be a TARDIS. Yeah. But I, I, I'm assuming, though, at some point in time, you're probably going to be able to paint the figures as you print them. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've heard that, talk. That's got to be somewhere down the line. Color printing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in which case you might as well buy like painted toy soldiers from Britons or something like that. I think. It, well, except that cost is a lot more. Britain. Well, yeah, but it's like that's you have to decide is that how much of that? I don't know. I mean, lots of people game with figures that they hire third parties to paint for them, and they seem to have a good time. So I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. How much of the how much of the hobby do you like? Do you enjoy the painting aspect of it versus the playing? Yes. yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For me, painting was always a chore until I started painting Bacchus figures. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not really sure what what the change was, but uh, I do enjoy them, and I do enjoy seeing them done and finished and on the table. So uh, Absolutely. Speed. Yeah, and I, I'm with you, Glenn, and I find, for me, the, the, the pleasure of it is that I don't agonize over every bloody figure. I don't agonize yes. about whether the shading right or the face right yeah. or gotcha you know it's just like blip 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 there's do 20 faces i can do 20 shakos i can do you know i can and it's impressionistic at the end it's like uh our friend sean likes to say right you uh paint the the unit not the figure yes the yeah. thing that turned me around was uh i remember when i was painting 25s i was painting a prussian army and i painted 12 battalions of prussian grenadiers it took me all summer, and I was so excited to get them on the table, and nobody really noticed. <laughs> oh, rude. Oh, dear. I would so I just it. said, hmm, this is uh, something I spent my summer on, and yeah. no one said, hey, oh, are those new figures? <laughs> I think nobody. I would notice someone showing up with 12 battalions of grenadiers. Yeah. <laughs> you would think, but Probably no. Probably would, too. They just made general conversation. They get into the game and no one even mentioned them at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so why I you said every, every game with like a, a 10 minute show and tell session. Right. You know, so yeah. everybody pretends to be polite while they wait for people to compliment their figures. Anyway. Yeah. We should probably start wrapping up. Let's do you want to go to the books segment? Glenn, what have you got for us in the way of books that uh, you want to deposit in the Canadian Wargamer podcast? Okay. Actually, a, a book here I'm, re I'm reading on cow pens, uh, 1781. 
and it's by Ed and Catherine Gilbert. Why is it I'm, good? I'm reading that simply because we just played the battle, and the, uh, one of the members had the book, and he gave it to me to read, so I'm reading it. Oh, okay. And now I've got, also got on the go, i got uh, Napoleon and Grouchy by uh, Paul Dawson. And this supposedly unravels the mystery, uh, the last great Waterloo mystery unraveled. And what's that? Of the, 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 where, where Napoleon is and Grouchy. The argument is historical that uh, Grouchy failed and that's why Napoleon lost Waterloo. And, the, and that's what Napoleon was adamant about. But the Grouchy and Grouchy uh, followers say, no, it was all Napoleon's fault and Grouchy is blameless. Okay. Paul has uh, done tedious work on who was where, what orders were written, and the uh, almost a moment by moment play of the, those couple of critical days. Yeah. I, I just read uh, Grouchy's Waterloo by a name I can't remember now, and he's too far away. Um, which, yeah, analyzing that whole that whole thing too. Uh, it's very very interesting, and getting and getting into his analysis got really got into um, you know what did people know? You know, it's yes. criticized looking back with perfect hindsight, but you know what did Napoleon know when he wrote that order? That's right. Yeah. And what did Grouchy know when he received that order? And you're getting into the wording of the order and was it clear or not? And yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the critical thing I always felt was that um, orders aside, Grouchy, in my opinion, failed simply because he had a third of the army at his disposal and he was the right flank of the army. And when he knew, which he did the night before, that the Prussians were heading towards Brussels, he should have moved rather than have a night's sleep and plan the battle of Wav the next day. And if he had have moved, he could have uh, prevented the Prussians from joining up at Waterloo. Mm. He didn't. I think by the time by the time he was by the time he's approaching Wavre though. The chance to like there's that river between him and Napoleon, and his chance that he should have, you know, Napoleon should have had him cross that river a day or two before, mm -hmm. right? And made more specific, you know, more clear orders about you're my flank guard. Yeah, well, the problem is Napoleon at that point in time didn't have any more information than Grouchy had. Grouchy actually had more information than Napoleon. Interesting. And uh, he decided that he, he felt he was doing the right thing because he knew a sizable Prussian force was in front of him at the wall. But uh, he also knew Prussians were moving uh, more towards uh, Belgium. So in my book, he should have immediately realized what the Prussian game was. They were stalling him while the rest of the army moved to Waterloo. Well, but there's and, also the, the thought that um yeah because like the prussians were, were basically moving cross-country yes. any major roads between wavre and mont saint jean yeah everybody thought this is a rear guard action while they 
fall back to Brussels where they're going to meet Wellington. Yes. So I, so if I just keep pushing, then I'm doing, I'm doing what the emperor has ordered me to do. Right. Really thinking that they're going to deep left. Not only that, in all fairness to him, he didn't know that Waterloo was going to be fought the next day. Yeah. Mm. Like I, I, it comes back down to, um, you know, yeah. Like, you know, you, you, you know, you may be the boss, but you know, it's your subordinates that make you look good. And if a subordinate fails, it's be you know, usually because they didn't have clear instructions, or you didn't support them adequately, or you put the wrong person in the job. Mm-hmm. I think that the third one is the is the most valid one. I think he was out of his element. He well, was, you know, but he had it, never been that level of a commander before. Yeah, well, and then Napoleon was kind of struggling with, you know, a lot of his a lot of his good corps commanders were dead by this time. Or yes. they or they set out the campaign like to, you know, or you know, they were back in like McDonald set out the hundred days. Davu was back in Paris doing staff work. Yeah. yeah and and, he, and and then he also he also had, you know, his, his very capable ind- you know, guys capable of independent command had to, you know, had to hold down the Rhine and Italy and you know these other fronts. Is there another uh, is there another title there for us, Glenn? You asked about uh, which ones were influential on me was, of course, the Campaigns of Napoleon by da- David Chandler. Mm, a classic. I read that a number of times. I've got uh, Scott Bowen, The Glory Years, Napoleon and Austerlitz. Mm-hmm. was an uh, excellent book in, in getting into the details of that uh, campaign. Very, very well written, a very knowledgeable individual. Cool. I don't know that book. Um, well, uh, Crisis on the Danube by James Arnold. Another uh, great inspirational author. I've read a number of his books as well as Scott Bowden's books. And of course, Chandler. All three of them are uh, brilliant. And uh, I've got uh, Battle Tactics of the Civil War, the American Civil War, by Patty Griffith. Ah, uh, yes. Another uh, excellent authority on the, the, on the period, uh, Napoleonic and Civil War. And the last one uh, is The Anatomy of Victory, Battle Tactics 1689 to 1763 by Brent Noseworthy. Oh, yes. And he is another uh, great scholar who I respect. And uh, all those guys collectively, I've read most of the books, and all of them influenced me one way or another and generally helped develop my overall view on Napoleonic warfare. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the way earlier when you were talking about how your, your reading of history led you to rethink um, some of the kind of standard bits that we assume every war game should have like formation changes and so forth. So that's a great example of how reading informs gaming and game design. Well, yeah, it was just so strange because I was introduced to the game and told this is the way the game works. You have formation changes and the first rule, one of the first rule sets I was introduced here was called, we actually had to 
march out the steps for a wheel. Oh, so you got goodness. your you got your uh, protractor out and your ruler, and you measured the movement for your wheeling. And if you were changing formation, you had to actually take your stands and wheel them into those formations. You just mm. didn't change the formation. So you need you to have to, the, you need to have the drill manual in one hand and the rule book in the other. Yeah, mm. and that's the way the rules were written. And I kept saying to myself, "This isn't fun. What the hell am I doing?" <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing this for? <laughs> I got into wargaming to fight to have some action, and all I'm doing is measuring. That's been a theme tonight. Is why are we doing this when it's so much fun? And and so, over time, I began to see that the rules I was playing was going in one direction, and all the information I was reading was going in a totally different direction. The two were never marrying anywhere. Mm. Yeah, very much at the. Uh, um arguing a you know bottom up versus top down yes design. and, yeah, and that, that that's exactly how our traditional rules were built yeah those, the bottom those, up because because they were around about small actions yeah and then they morphed into trying to do bigger actions using those same details and it just killed the game yeah those napoleonic rules yeah where you're 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 measuring out the paces and moving each company as your battalion changes from yeah the same as the world war ii rules where you're worrying about um you know armor versus penetration and angle of you know angle of hit and yeah you know how many gears does uh is in the is in the transmission box on this tank versus that tank right yep now some people love that and i respect that but that's not my game i don't i don't enjoy those things no, yeah. no. Wow. Well, Glenn, thanks so much for being our guest tonight. This has been uh, uh, a great hour and a, almost an hour and a half of, of conversation. Yeah. We've really enjoyed it. I will put a link to um, your uh, Facebook page. And uh, as our march out at the end of the podcast, we our tradition is to do a, a something that is meaningful to our guest that also connects with the Canadian military music tradition. And you told us that you liked bagpipe music. Yep. And you're in Toronto. So we have found uh, the regimental march of the Toronto Scottish regiment, which is blue bonnets over the border. And All right. We'll play that at the end of the podcast. So uh, thanks mate. I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate uh, spending time with the two of you. It was uh, delightful. Yeah, we will check in again um, down the road and see how your World War II rolls are going. Yeah. Well, by all means. Okay. All right. Thanks, Glenn. Good night, guys. Thanks. All right. Taking the dog out for a little walk before we got on the air, and I was saying my dog walking prayer in the cold, which is, please, please poop, please poop. (laughs) (laughs) The love of of God, poop. Let's find a tree you like. So you don't get me up at two in the morning. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, so uh, winter, winters certainly come back after our nice little week thaw. Yeah, it's very, very, been very strange here. We went up to about, I think, 10 degrees yesterday or something yeah, like that. All the snow melted. All the snow melted, yeah. But we might still have a white Christmas. So, yeah, we're back uh, about a week after we talked to Glenn Pierce. So it was a great conversation. Um, I was just doing a little um, a peek on the Bacchus website. Mm-hmm. rules, the, the Polemos Ruse de Guerre rules, also known on the Polemos website as the P-O-L-R-D-G, Polardig, Polardig. 
Wow. I guess. You know, you got to have an acronym for your rules. Yeah. It's not a great acronym, but. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, and they are advertised as War Games Rules designed to bring out the best in your six mil armies, quick to play, easy to use, but with a command system designed to make you think. And quick to play, easy to use. We've heard that in all the rules. Yeah, I, I believe Glenn though what he says. Well, you know, and I, I would be interested in, you know, as he says it, it's very scalable. You know, if you're playing American War of Independence, a stand can be a company. And yeah. then, or you're playing like Leipzig, a stand is a brigade. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I think I'd want to play that to see how it'd work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, because I did at a broadsword, oh, many years back now, because COVID, mm-hmm. um, I played a really cool six millimeter, um, was it War of Independence? I think it was War of Independence. Because mm-hmm. uh, it, it was British versus somebody. And we had Indian allies. Um, yeah, so I think it was War of Independence, not War of 1812. And, um, but it was six millimeter. And the ground scale matched the figures. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So like half a centimeter was two meters. You know, so like, you know, vision, you know, visually you see like, you know, these short little musket ranges. But no, it's like your musket range is like way out there. Because it was a scaled, you know, accurately scaled. Say, okay, your chances to hit that far down, down the field were pretty bad. But you know, in each each little stand, like each figure was a figure. So your stand of, I can't remember what he had them on. Like, you know, it was like two ranks. I think it was maybe forty guys in a stand. So it was like you know a half company. Mm-hmm. And you were maneuvering your battalion. You know, I was maneuvering my my wing of my battalion around and my little detachment of guys. And you know, and it was it was very cool. It, it was it was really cool to to experience that game. Um, I definitely you know, um, if I if, if Barnaby does another broadsword that's opened up to things other than Lardy rules, um, I think right now his focus is on the Lardy days, right? Which is a bit limiting, but if he opens up a broadsword again, Barnaby, talking to you. Um, you know, I'd definitely be interested in playing that guy's game again. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was really neat. So I, I would like, I, you know, I would be interested to try with the Ruse de Guerre is, you know, do a game with, you know, stand as a company and a game with a stand as a brigade and see, like, do they just feel the same? Or do they actually, you know, am I making a, you know, battalion firing line with companies or, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. And and I'm trying to vaguely remember um oh three or three years ago when I actually went to Glenn's place in Scarborough and uh his his gaming basement, which is a pretty impressive place. And we were playing the Battle of Ligny, and the whole battle was on the table. I, I couldn't tell you what the scale was, but it was it was it was abstracted, but there was yeah. You know the town of Ligny and the, the the landmarks like the windmill, the famous windmill in the battlefield. Yeah, that and wasn't a, that wasn't a small little fragment. No, it was fairly large, like a couple of quarters aside. Yeah, and uh, I remember the game flowed fairly quickly. I had a little bit of trouble grasping the uh, initiative and the use of command points, but I think that's just because I, uh, you know, it's your first game. Yeah, uh, you need to playing the system, but. Uh, I would certainly recommend to any of our listeners, if you are in the greater Toronto area or close to it, 
and you wanted to try six mil gaming, uh, I would get a, get a hold of Glenn because uh, going through some of my emails, I'm still on the invites for his gaming group. Uh, they've gone just in the last year, they've gone to uh, Medino de Rio Seco, the Peninsular War Battle he talked about. They've done Calpins, they did the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, they did uh, Castiglione, which was one of the early mm -hmm. Napoleonic Wars in Italy. Um, I can go. Italian theater doesn't get covered much. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, so, you know, you have to you have to take your tricorn or your shako off to Glenn and his group for the the, the range of battles that they do. Well, you know, and being able to cover, you know, a big battle like Ling Lingi and have it flow smoothly and do it in a day, you know, I assume it was like a six-hour session or something with a meal break. Yeah, the Glenn sort of like, starts nine, and you're you're out the door by four. It's pretty pretty. Yeah, uh, that that's that's pretty good. That's yeah. you know that that's something to um, not sneeze at. No, for sure. So, you know, I guess if I was going to do six mil, um, I would definitely look at these rules. Yeah, I'm going to put the uh, link to the. Uh, the Rooster Gear rules from the Bacchus website on our show notes. The Bacchus website says they're also available from Wargames Vault. So I will put that. Okay. Yeah. So you can just print them yourself. Yeah, I think so. And while I'm uh, looking at the Polemus website, I'm looking at their little refreshing bar on the side where it's showing me all of their um, six mil World War II stuff. And I'm curious to see. Curious to see what Glenn's ideas for World War II gaming are. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because he wants to do like division core yeah. size actions. Um, yeah. which yeah, it's you know, then you're then you're kind of you're not you're not removing you know vehicle casualties, you're more sort of all that squadrons accumulated a lot of shock and disruption and yeah, yeah. you know, they've got to pull back and yeah. Well, I guess a squadron, a squadron of tanks could get destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Maison le Patrie, um, <laughs> or no, le Maison. The, the death ride of the first is ours. Yes, Maisonel. Maisonel to something or other. Yeah, yeah. Where they they just drove right into an ambush. Yeah, and yeah. lost like three quarters of their their tanks. But anyway, anyway. James, what are you uh, painting? I see you working on. Uh, well, I am. I am. You know, I bought myself about almost sixty Conquer models dwarves. Yes. Yeah, we talked about. And those I was um, feeling a little self indulgent and worried that you know ah, postal strikes and metal going up and the pound fall. You know, and and I won't be able to get these things anymore. So I better buy some. So I bought myself four shield walls of, of dwarves with spears. And uh, yeah, so I'm working on them um, and I'm alternating them with 1809 Austrians. And I might throw some Prussians and Russians in the mix too when I get back to assembly and gluing. Just to try and mix it up instead of, you know, like over the summer was this massive slog of painting Prussians. And by the time I got, you know, the brigade done i was just like okay i need a break <laughs> i don't want to paint any more brushes and i still have like i don't know three battalions four battalions to go so 
and they need it. They need some more cavalry, and the Napoleonic armies are very needy. They are absolutely. You no, know, you start putting. Oh, okay, I got a nice little force. And you go. Oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. Oh, they need another gun. That's right. Yeah, now they need a limber. Now, oh, now they need more cavalry. It's like, oh, god damn it, god. you guys, you guys are like cats that can, you know, Napoleonic armies are like kit, kitties that can see the bottom of their food dish. They just start whining. I need hussars. I can hear my Austrians already. We need hussars. hussars. We're Austrians, and we're, you know, we gotta have hussars. Like, well, yeah, you do, you do, because you know, like, who's a good little Austrian? Right. Yes. You know, and you scratch them under their helmet and they purr, and, you know. It's slightly surreal. <laughs> Wait, I'll, I'll show you my first Austrians. I got a, uh, a two-group two group formation done. Okay. The cable is tangled here. You get to see all the spiders. I'm trying, um, trying to avoid motion sickness here. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I wasn't really. There we go. There we go. So the, the cables are all just kind of in a bunch, then it just shoved them out of the way. But there they are. Oh, look at them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Against this nice. Uh, you got a nice little freebie. backdrop there. Yeah, from John Hillsden. Right. He's got a couple of freebies up on his website. And okay. They print off to an eight and a half by 11, which means you got to get kind of creative with your, you know, framing. And what is what is John Hilston? John Hilston. Okay. He's an artist. Okay. So and well, since I got the camera out, here are the dwarves. Hello. Oh, look at that. This trust me, folks. For these who are just listening on radio, this is fascinating. Yeah. Right. Totally. Oh, there we go. Point light. Um. Oh yes, nice primary color shields. Very nice. Well, I'm going to put designs on them. That's just the okay. base colors. Yeah. Right? yeah. I, I was kind of wondering. I, I think the the um, get get there that the chieftain right there with the yes. with all the great beard art going on. Um, yes, yes, and the the hem on the, the embroidered hems on his robe, very nice. Uh, I'm I'm thinking I'm going to try and do like a a wolf biting its tail for him. Very nice, and there's. There's the back of its cloak, which I'm rather pleased with. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, but most of the spear carriers will just be like simple, you know, quartering and you know, Sax Saxon kind of designs. Yeah. So all with uh, all with comic Scottish accents. Well, that's the that's the that's the uh, Harfoots, right? It's yeah. it's musical Scotsmen that are. That are, that are dwarves. Yeah. So I, I confess, since you and I uh, did our last podcast, I have not gone back to uh, the Rings of Power. I, I stopped watching it when um, the, the folks from Numenor won the little battle and then the earth blew up. And I guess that's the origin story of Mordor. So, oh, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. 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 Well, you, you, you hung in there longer than I did. Yeah, I'm not sure I need to go back. Yeah. So anyway, uh, dwarves and, and you know what? I saw those Saxons on your Twitter feed and I like the their kind of resigned uh, look as their sort of heads are down. And oh, the Austrians, you mean? 
or Austrians. Yeah, the way they're just well, sort of. Yeah, that was the test figure. Um, yeah. I kind of picked him because he looked broody. It, it's a it's a problem with the Victrix because um, you know you glue the packs on yeah. and you glue the heads on, and the pack like when Perry Perry does, you know, they try and get very nice flat backs so that the packs go on very well and you get a good a good fit. Right. And there's obvious places to line up the things that are supposed to line up with belts. Whereas with the Victrix, they kind of don't totally line up terribly well and so this pack was sitting a little high and you know the the back the austrian helmet's got like a back back brim right that was sort of being pushed up by his by his uh great coat bedroll thing yeah so he looks very depressed mm. yeah but you know he's an austrian soldier they just they go ah oh, here it goes again cool we ever going to win one of these things? That's right. We're own seven this series so far, but we'll beat the French one day. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm reading. Um, I'm in volume two of Thunder on the Danube. Right. And it didn't all go the French way. No. no he, he's um, in the chapter I'm right in the middle of. Uh, it's talking about the Italian front of the 1809 campaign, and it started out very badly for the French. You know, they lost a couple of battles. Um, They're a little too overconfident trying to, you know, um, not retreat and get Napoleon mad at them. So, yeah. Hmm. I mean, when, when they were, when they were, they were decently handled. Okay. Which wasn't often. Um, although the Austrian soldiers fought really hard. I mean, look at the bat, you know, look at the fighting in aspirin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the description from one eyewitness was that the village was reduced to a pile of cinders um, filled with corpses. Yeah, yeah. Like, ooh. Unpleasant. And then, you know, you go to the other side of the battlefield with the battle, with, with the fighting in Essling. And, you know, these guys are, they're, they're giving it, they're all, but the generals couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery. They're all they're sort of taking. It's like they're they're standing around waiting their turn to attack. You know, you, you're outnumbering the French like four to one. Just everybody go in. <laughs> you'll you'll be fine. Just go in. Yeah. Well, you know, except they're going in like you know one brigade at a time. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's just a function of how hard it is to handle a large army in the horse and musket period, right? I mean, look well, at um, some of that, and also yeah. just. Like very, um, you know, uninspired Austrian generalship. Right, right. You know, they had some. They had some good. You know, certainly their their junior commanders, like their junior officers, battalion commanders, are very dedicated, very brave. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it seemed once they got up to, you know, brigade division, well, corps. They didn't really have a division and corps structure. Uh, they started getting very risk adverse. You know, they're starting to get very. To like too political, you know, they're not like, you know, um, getting back to the Battle of Aspirin, you know, you got Mess- Messina, who's just a, he's just a lion mm-hmm. organizing the, the, the French side of that battle. And he's running around, he's screaming, he's spitting bullets, he's leading charges, like he's directing battalions at a time and throwing guys in and he's throwing the, you know, like, and the, the fighting goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You know, and, and finally on the second day when Napoleon says, 
okay, we just have to get out of here, right? We're the bridge is broken again. We you know we're out of ammunition. We've got to retreat, or we're going to be dead. And he says, you know, sends a you know Galloper goes to Messina and is like, can you hold them for two hours? He says, two hours. I will hold them for twenty four. I won't leave. And it's like, oh, dude, calm down. <laughs> it's like this is like epic stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and that like, you know, and that's I think that's the the thing that's sort of the appeal of Napoleonic gaming, right? You had these great larger than life characters striding across battlefields, fantastic uniforms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fairly easy to grasp tactics. You know, um, but. You know, like when you get to like a big battle, you know, like do do you kind of lose the character of you know the Nays and the Messinas and you know Davu? Like they just kind of become a little a little stand with a couple little blobs. You know, it's like oh, he's got a command radius of twelve inches, and he gets a plus three when he's attached <laughs> to a brigade. Yeah, it's like cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's. That's ooh, yeah, he's roaring like a lion. <laughs> yeah, especially in six mil. Yeah, I you know maybe I'm I maybe I'm asking too much. That's just me. But it, it is, you know, it, it's a problem with, with war gaming in general, right? Well, yeah, that's true. But um, that's what I've been up to. Yeah. Speaking of aspirin Essling, I have on my Kindle, which I don't have in front of me right now, I have a great graphic novel called The Battle, which is about, um, I'm not a big graphics novel fan, but I, it was one of those things that the Amazon algorithm recommended to me. And it's about uh, Asper and Essling. Huh. And it follows a, uh, it follows a French um, uh, cavalry officer who hmm. you know, ends up being seconded to Napoleon as a courier. And Okay. So he gets scallop all over the place. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's um, it's. I only have I've only read the first two volumes. I'm I haven't pulled the trigger yet on ordering the third installment. There's three volumes, but it's Kindle, oh so it's not too expensive. And I wish I could remember the name of the author, but I will put it in the show notes because it's okay. um, it's pretty gripping stuff. In terms of painting, from me, I I'm, the lighting here is really really crappy. So I it is yeah. what that's. So these are two. Oh, okay. Um, there are two Paul Hicks Warlord figures from a battalion that our friend uh, Mike gave us. Okay, for your... Um, yeah, Mike Barrett. Fenian Rebellion. Yeah, Fenian Rebellion, Alt-Civil War. Um, so they're, yeah, they're British. I think they're Crimean War because they have... Probably. They have backpacks with um, mess kits and... Um, but and then they have kind of like lots of Napoleonic frogging on their tunics and funny little. Yeah, I know. Pro- probably a uniform specialist could explain yeah. to us the detail, the, the changes between you know, the Crimea and the 1860s. But mm, I don't care really. Close um, enough to me. I just know they're wearing a little Glengarry's little pillbox hats with the pom poms, and that to me that says 1860s. Yeah, yeah, they could be if they could if they look like they could be changing the guard at Fort Henry. Yeah, and you know, exactly. Which, if anyone is not comes to Ontario, uh, go visit Fort Henry during the summer and watch the the Fort Henry guard do their thing. It's super cool. It is. 
It is. There's also a great craft beer festival over the last week of August. Except the Fort Henry Guard won't be marching through the middle of it. No, no. Just put, but you get to sit in the lawn and. Um, well, okay. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of what I'm working on right now, and then I have a bunch of Victrix um, Roman auxilia that are uh, assembled, and I'm mm-hmm. start painting them, and that wasn't that hard to assemble. I was assembling them last week while I was watching episode four of The Peripheral. You've been watching that, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. It is It is certainly in my top four of all-time favorite science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Like, which includes The Expanse, Babylon 5, and Firefly. Wow, that's pretty pretty high praise. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's really good. It's a, I mean, what's well, a William Gibson novel, right? So, yeah. And William Gibson is, if you haven't read William Gibson, um, listeners out in Radioland, uh, read him. He, mm-hmm. He's very insightful. Um, his vision of the future is kind of dark and Terrifying. scary. Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, he doesn't just, I don't know, he's, it's proper science fiction. Like yes, he's, yeah. he's actually looking at how you know the science of things like printing and nanotech and AIs and stuff like how that will impact us. Yeah, and because it's near future and he's really analytical, um, I don't think there's I don't I don't think anything. If you look at his earlier fiction, nothing he's imagined has not come to pass. Yeah. No, um, like he was one of the first cyberpunk SF writers of the early 1990s. He kind of started cyberpunk. Yeah, pretty much. Neuromancer, I think, would be the. Anyway, my wife, who's a huge William Gibson fan, um, uh, likes the peripheral. She found it very, very dark and she faults it a little bit for drifting away from the. the book, but uh, it's very, very well done. My only complaint was, is that the. they they use i mean it's very very violent and maybe mm-hmm. maybe more so than it has to be um but uh anyway you know it's yeah, and that that's kind of keeping the you know keeping the tempo of a you know a streaming show going yeah. we gotta have a bit of action every episode right yeah yeah people interested yeah. um Highly recommended, and it was great TV to put Roman Exilia together uh, while watching. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that is dear to our hearts because it involves Bavarians. Ooh. It involves guys, Lederhosen. Start dancing. It involves Tyrolean goats. Yes. And Austrians. We are talking about the Alps Aflame Kickstarter from Lucas Luber of Piano War Games. Yeah, gorgeous, des- gorgeous designer. Yeah, absolutely. I have backed it. Uh, oh, very good. Good for you. I'm all so, in. All in for all the STLs. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, because I, 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 I kind of looked at it. I mean, I yep. didn't watch the video because I had, you know, I was at work and I had a crappy connection as I do. Right. Um, and so. Yeah, I wasn't sure, like, sort of how, like, I guess it would it would would explain to you, sort of, okay, you've 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 back for twenty bucks. This is what you can. This is what you get. 
for young yeah. for 60 bucks this is what you get yeah something like that so uh it's like any other kickstarter it's in um uh i guess it's in tiers or um you know levels pledge mm-hmm. levels there are you know different levels of backing so you can you can choose whether you want the STL files or you can choose whether you want the lead files. You can choose if you just want um, the lead, sorry, the lead figures vice the uh, the STL files, if you want to print them um, and then you decide which ones you want. So I chose the tier for um, where you basically just get all the STL files. Oh. Uh, so that includes all the, the Tyrolians, all of the, uh, Austrians, all of the Bavarians, plus the goats. Yay, goats! Goats, cattle. Goats are fun. And, you know, the the pack of Tyrolean civilians I just thought was really cute. Yeah, I kind of thought you'd like them. I don't know if I'll ever print them all, but I'll, I think between the two of us, I think we could have fun printing them. And then you just basically, now there there is a school of thought with Kickstarters that you just back them at the lowest possible level. And like you just generally, Say yeah, I'm going to back it for a dollar, and then if the if the guy makes his target, then you can come in. If it looks like he's going to make his target, you can come in later on, and um, but Throw it's a way of sort of showing support. Um, but in this case, uh, the just as to, as just to give an example of how a Kickstarter works, he has that like that one year old pledge where you just basically yeah, you're just putting your money behind it and saying I I think this is a great idea. Good luck with it. Um, you don't actually get anything, but you can upgrade your pledge later on. Okay. Um, you can get just the Bavarian STL files, the Austrian STL files, the Trollian files, the Danube campaign, which is Austrian and Bavarian kingdom, plus certain uh, casualty and personality. And then the Alps of Flame starter set, which is metal, which gives you... Uh, 12 sets of metal miniatures. So you're, you're not getting a lot of figures, but you're getting some. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I think it's just showing the way that we've talked about this on the podcast before about how more and more uh, the tendency is, is for designers to uh, put the bulk of their work into SDL files. And then. Well, uh, but it's, it's nice that Lucas, that it's nice that Lucas is doing both. Yes. Yeah. You know, so for like, you know, if, if say I didn't have friends willing to print for me, I would be forced to buy the metal. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's nice that there's that option. And I, mean, I did look and, you know, as his previous Kickstarters are still available, like, well, they're not Kickstarters anymore, but that were launched under Kickstarter. They're available on the store. Right. Was, he's, he's got a very nice line of, of Württemberg troops, mm-hmm. which yep. if you're doing the 1809 campaign are very important. Yeah. Uh, Württemberg light uh, brigade performed very heroically in the um, opening stages of the campaign, especially at the Battle of um, Egnall. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, storming a bridge and taking a castle, and those epic stuff. Um, and they look really cool. But, uh, yeah, so, because because you know, things like, sometimes, you know, it's like, oh, you know, the Kickstarter, and if you don't back the Kickstarter, and you hear about it later, you know, or you just go, oh, well, I just want, like, you know, a couple of figures. It's like, well, sorry, you can't. You know, only the people who back the Kickstarter get it. It's like, well, but, but I don't. I don't know how common that is. I, in my experience, you know, most vendors will uh, will put their stuff on uh, on their on their store. The advantage of a Kickstarter is that you get, you know, you you kind of it, it's it's one stop shopping. Mm. If you if you want to put a 
if you want to put a fair bit of money down, you'll you'll get you can you can get pretty much everything in a range, assuming that it comes to fruition, right? Well, and certainly like the his you know Bavarian list looks very complete. Yeah, the Tyrolians seem very complete. Another bunch of angry peasants. So I don't know how complete completeness is. Um, you know, and the Austrians are looking pretty good too for the 1809 campaign. I mean, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different kinds of cavalry he could add. I mean, my I, I just saw dragoons and Chevalier. Um, mm. You know, and my feeling is always, oh, it's an Austrian army, it's not his ours. But yeah. I I think I saw something in, in verbiage that yeah he was going to do his ours. So maybe there will be his ours coming. There you go. We we can only hope because you know then I will get you to print some hazars. And the scale, the scale of the, um, you know, the Trillian Rebellion is such that, um, you know, it's perfect for, um, I mean, you don't need hazars necessarily or cuirassi or whatever. You can just, print, oh no, you could just print or, or paint a dozen metal figures or, you know, as plastic resin figures and you've got enough for a skirmish, right? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like in the Danube Valley, not just the T-roll. Oh right! I've got, I've got all my 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 Austrian regulars, right? Who, you know, they were kind of following the Tyrolean um, rebels. You know, they like the Tyrolians did most of the fighting, chasing the Bavarians out, and then they, you know, they, there were there were some engagement. There were some engagements with quite mixed forces of Tyrolians, um, Austrian regulars, Austrian landwehr. So when I do the Danube valley then i need you know hussars you know that's when i also get get you to print a third brigade of bavarians uh, i may have to get myself another printer for christmas i had to um i had to a uh, deep six one that just was not performing and it just drove me crazy oh, here well it was just yeah but oddly the my my basic elegu mars 2 printer is just a star it's oh, good. Uh, yeah it's just um I don't have a lot of t- time to access it now, but that will change. So yeah, yeah that is uh, that's kind of what I've been doing as far as painting and and shopping. I'm excited about the Piano War Games Kickstarter, so I'll put a link to that. Yeah. In the show. Um, just one more thing before we leave: what is fated to become the uh, Canadian Napoleonic Pod War Game Podcast? Um, well, it's it's something we're kind of interested in right now. Something we're both interested in, for sure. You know, I mean, if 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 we'd done this like a couple of years back, it would have been all World War II. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and probably. Or there. before that, I would I would have been in Afghanistan. You know, there were a few years there where I was all about ancient Rome, man. That's right, and you were Mister Colonial for a long time too. Yeah, Northwest yeah. Frontier. Yeah, yeah. And those those Romans and Colo- and Northwest Frontier were they they were pre blog. So that's like twelve. That's eleven, twelve years ago now. Yeah. Hey, that reminds me, I was a sort of subtopic. You're more diligent about blogging right now than I am. Have you yes. been putting more effort into it since the rumors of uh, Twitter's demise or is it about the same level of effort? Um, same, same. Yeah. Like when, when I complete something, I, you know, take some finished pictures and, and, and put them up. Um, yeah. you know, when I have a game, I put them up like I, I had a nice sharp practice game a couple of weeks ago, which you can kind of see behind me, the ruins of the terrain as things have pushed back, you know? Um, Cause I, I sort of had vague idea. I left it set up cause I had vague ideas. Oh, this is kind of an interesting scenario. I'd like to play it again solo. 
um, but of course never did. Um, you know, and I had to like that one, we're just having so much fun. I didn't take many pictures. So I, after, you know, the next morning I reset things up and, you know, staged some shots of critical moments. So I could have a bit of a better, a better pictorial narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, but sadly hands and friends, um, they just, they were just kind of spectators. So I didn't get to put, I didn't really get them. I guess I could have, I could have had them just sitting there watching and commenting. Um, but you know, my, my super expensive Bavarian Schutzen formation, you know, with the cloud, you know, with the plus three liter and oh, everything, you know, uh, they came on last. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I use some, uh, you know, four command cards to get an extra activation, push them up into a wood where they could support the, uh, you know, the fuselers are on one side firefighting with the Russians and and then the, the Leger were kind of squaring off and making angry eyes at the Russian Ulans. And it's like, okay, well, we'll get them up in the woods and they can, you know, they can shoot up the Ulans or they can shoot up the Russian Jaegers. And and it's like just stuff happened. And they just kind of like, oh, this is cool. But boy, we look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so whole the whole battle, the whole like the 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 the, the unit of the match was my cheap ass plastic hat um, light company formation of Bavarians. They just, they came on first, I pushed them up, then they just, they just delivered some horribly devastating volleys onto the, um, onto the Russian Grenadiers and just, yeah. You know, the shock just kept piling up on Patrick and he, he just couldn't do it. He couldn't get the shock off enough and they ran and, you know, and shock is a killer in sharp practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Always, it's always those uh, grunt units that deliver, right? What's yeah. That, what's that line from Henry V? We are but warriors for the working day. Yeah. That's right. There you go. That's right. We could play the, the we could play the uh, fanfare for the common man from uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. <laughs> Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I like it. Uh, before we leave the... Uh, and the uh, other irony I want to point yeah, out, though, before we get into our closing, is, you know, I set up this great big table, and, yes, and, we, and we fight on half of it. Of course, right. You know, our deployment, just the way our deployment points lined up at one end of the table, and so half the table just sat there looking pretty. Wargamer problems, right? Wargamer problems, yeah. Nice problems to have. Um, we talked, as I said, we've talked a lot tonight about Napoleonics. Um, there is something we can talk about in a very limited opsec sort of way, which is you and I are both in a creep spiel. Yes. Run by one of our listeners, Wendy DeWolf. Hey, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Um, we are not going to say much about it, except that it is set in uh, Germany in 1805. 1806. 1806, that's right. Yes. 1806, 1806 campaign. Yeah. The, uh, the Grand Army is chasing the Prussians around, or vice versa. Yes. There is a lot of running around in the dark, isn't it? There's a lot of running around the dark. It's a cracking good creep spiel. It's a multi-week play-by-email creep spiel, and uh, Wendy is doing an amazing job of umpiring it. Yeah, and it just and just the learning curve, you know, of you know, it's like, oh, I want to just move, and she says, okay, well, you know, you got to line up, you know, once you line up all your divisions, like these guys are, they're going to still be in town. Yeah, yeah. You know, by the end of the day, it's like, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Huh. 
Yeah, trying um, to move cores along a very simple road network is challenging. Yeah, you know, you kind of start understanding why some, you know, some of the you know board games have like you know stacking limitations, and you can only move so many guys down the road at a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, you know, at the same time as playing this, I'm reading, you know, um, uh, Grushi's Waterloo, and um, you know, Thunder and the Danube, and you know, getting into all the, you know, what did Napoleon know, and and you know the, the the fog of war they're trying to make decisions in and and just you know going ah this is what they're doing they're going to be there you know and you know and the learning curve amongst the players is um you know where you're like okay uh what 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 what's going on with this other guy you know like on my team i'm not hearing from him ah has he been crushed am i about to have all kinds of bad people attacking me you know like what you know just where the where the hell is he you know if i if i want to support him where should i go <laughs> you know? and and then you know i think you know a couple of turns into the game then it's like getting more reports back because you know you know we're all kind of learning that we really should send memos to each other you know, even if even if it's not orders or receiving orders or reports to to our higher command, at least just FYIs. Yeah. I'm in here and I'm going to do this. Okay, yeah. cool, good. Now I know. <laughs> yeah, my boss is uh, very very insistent about what I'm doing, and uh, I get angry notes if um, if I've been out of contact for too long. So it's interesting. Yeah, and and I, I made a comment to what to Wendy the one time just sort of an offside. It's like I suppose you know going for you know, commander's intent and mission command is rather anachronistic for the, you know, for this period. But, well, I guess, you know, I guess Napoleon, Napoleon's army was getting into mission command. That's why the marshals are so good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, yeah, provided that uh, Napoleon took the credit when they succeeded. Yeah. Well, so yeah. we're, uh, we're hoping to have um, Wendy as a guest on the podcast when this is all over. And I really can't say anything more right now about, because uh, James and I don't even know, uh, like I have a rough idea what side James is on, but I don't know that for sure. And uh, I have no idea where he is on the map. The map is basically all of central Germany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and there's. Yeah, we're, we're, we're playing from Magdeburg in the north. Yeah. Down to Bayreuth and Würzburg in the south. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, uh, yeah, it's, and there's Leipzig. Yeah, there's Leipzig. Yeah. So, um, we should just maneuver so we have, we, we have the Battle of Leipzig early. Yeah. So, we're, our hope is to have Wendy on the show when it's all over and we can do it. Wendy can tell us what it was like watching this from, uh, from her God's eye point of view. Um, I'm not sure when that'll be because I suspect this is going to go on for another month or so. Oh, Um, yeah. That's my guess, anyway. Well, some some turns some turns kind of flip over a little quicker than others. Depends, I guess depends yeah. on how many how many engagements she has to has to sort out. You know, and yeah. I know there have been some weeks where she's had to poke me because just because I've had shit going on, and it's like, and it's like, oh crap, okay. Um, you know, I'm trying to you know look at the map on my phone at work and type orders back, and it's like I think I know where I'm sending people. Yeah. Where I'm deploying. I have, I have, 
printed in a three ring binder that I keep close to my computer. Um, oh, you're way more organized. I, well, in this case I am, because I want to win. Oh, I'm slacking it. <laughs> as far as future guests go, um, I, we have a few other ideas and we won't, uh, James and I need to talk about uh, um, future ideas. So we'll just stay tuned for future podcasts. Um, I think that's kind of everything I want to talk about tonight, James. Are you, are we good? Oh, we're fabulous. We are fabulous. Uh, it's nice to be doing this again and uh, nice to be feeling good about it. Um, yeah. We had promised uh, Glenn uh, that we would find some appropriate music uh, to play out the show. And I'm just trying to remember what we agreed on. I, we Bonnets agreed, over the border. Blue Bonnets over the border, that's right. From the Toronto uh, Scottish March March March. The Toronto Scottish Regiment. Thank you, James. Uh, we chose that because uh, Glenn's a Toronto guy and he said he'd like the bagpipes. And the Toronto Scottish is a um, uh, very distinguished Canadian regiment. So there you go. That will be our march out. James, this has been grand. Thanks very much. All right. Well, good night to all our uh, listeners out in Podland and our ships at sea. Yeah. Thanks for listening, folks. We uh, we're grateful for uh, we're grateful for however many of you listen. And if you have any suggestions or comments, uh, get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Take care. Good night, everybody. Good night, eh? Good night, eh? Thank you.